Tonight, let's talk about the marks of an effective church. There are a lot of ideas about what makes a church a good church, an effective church. All of us, at some time or another, have decided, well, where are we going to go to church? You move into a community and you have to measure maybe a number of congregations. There are some places where you don't have the luxury uh, because of the size of the church, you don't have the luxury to shop, so to speak. Um, but in an area like this, we, we have choices. And uh, we want to find what will best help me and my family uh, to go to heaven. And so that begs the question, what makes a good church? What should I be looking for? What men may think is the marks of a successful church isn't necessarily what God thinks are the marks of a successful church. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1, you have the church at Sardis, and um, they had, Jesus said, a reputation of being alive. You know, you, you ask the folks in town at Sardis, what, what do you think of the church down there on the corner? Oh, man, that is, a, that is a, an alive church. Man, they are active. They're doing, and, and they would have had their list of things that made them think it's a, an alive, living church. But Jesus said, you're not. You're dead. There's no life in you. And uh, though they were dead as a whole, there were still a few folks that were still faithful in that congregation. But what that tells me is that there are different standards of what one may think is a living, effective church and what God thinks is a living, effective church. There are those that think that if you have a big building, if you, if you can make a splash in the community, if you have a large attendance, if you have large contribution, um, if you have a lot of entertainment, things to keep you busy, constantly on the go, where you don't have time to rest and relax, that must be a, a strong, faithful church. Those things may be elements of strong, faithful churches, but they are not essential to it. And I want to share what God tells us is a strong church. And I want you to take notice of this one thing. To be an effective, faithful, strong congregation of God's people, it's within our grasp. There's nothing to, to becoming that that is what we can't do that because we don't have enough money, we don't have enough members, we don't have enough resources. There's nothing in this list as God views it that would keep us from it except ourselves. And so let's look at a few qualities tonight of what I believe uh, is our, our marks of a strong an effective church. Number one, a church that is effective <clears throat> is Christ-centered. It has to start there. If we lose the focus of Jesus, we've, we've lost our, our purpose for being. The purpose of a church is to reconcile people to Jesus, to point people to Jesus, because he and only Jesus is their Savior. Nobody else can help us. The Apostle Paul said, I, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet. Not I, but Christ lives in me. Everything about Paul, he said, it's to be lived for Jesus. He's the center. He's the focus of my life. And he's the focus of this book. I mean, when you stop and think about this book that you have, 
it's as though Jesus were, you know, if you had a, a, I've used this illustration before, but if you had a needle and you could poke it through and pull it out the other side with a thread, he is woven through this book, all 66 books. You can go to the Old Testament books of law and you see Jesus as the foundation of uh, the law. And then you go to the Old Testament books of history and we see the preparation for Christ, his coming, the establishment of the nation of Israel. You go to the books of poetry in the Old Testament and you see that Jesus is the aspiration of the people. They long for uh, a relationship with their Redeemer and a mediator, as Job speaks of. The Old Testament prophets tell us of the expectation of the coming Messiah, how that he will be coming and that he... Uh, has promised to come. You come into the New Testament gospel accounts and you see the manifestation of Jesus. He's now here. The one that we have longed for, the one that we have told is coming, he's here. You get to the book of Acts and you see the propagation of Jesus. The message of Christ is taken throughout Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. And you look at the epistles in the New Testament and you see the application of Jesus. What is it that he would have us do? How, what, how do we interpret Jesus in the life of the church? What, how should we live? And then you come to the book of Revelation, the history book of the New Testament, uh, or the book of prophecy in the New Testament. And in that book, we see the consummation of all things in Jesus, where we began with a relationship to God in, in a paradise ends because of Jesus in a relationship with God in paradise, having once again access to the tree of life. Everything is about Jesus. Listen, if you want to be a great church, if we want to be a great church, we need to focus on Jesus. That's the focal point. It's not about our programs. It's not about ministering to other people or doing certain things or or having a reputation among the community. What our purpose and focus is Jesus. A great church is Christ-centered. A second point is that a great church is bound by Scripture. We go by the Bible. We don't go beyond the Bible. In John chapter 12, in the context of verse 48, there were some people who believed in Jesus, but they would not confess him because they feared the Pharisees. They feared that they would be cast out of the synagogue. And so they they believed, but they wouldn't say anything because they were afraid. And in that context, Jesus reminds them, listen, the words that I have spoken, the same shall judge you in the last day. If you, you can reject Jesus, you can reject his word, but it won't change the fact that we are bound by scripture. A great church, an effective church, is a church that stands on the word of God, that has book, chapter, and verse for what they practice, that, that teaches Bible and not opinion. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11, if any man speak, let him speak as not the opinions of men or the, the, uh, presuppositions that we might have. He says, if any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If a person, if a church is to focus on Jesus, why would they get away from Scripture? Because it's Scripture that reveals to us Jesus and his will. And, and we live in a time when 
you know, we hear things about, well, you know, the Bible, proof texting, Bible thumpers. They're all kind of derogatory terms used of people that would quote Scripture, use Scripture as support for what they believe and what they teach. We need to get back to that. We need to preach from the Bible. And if a person doesn't have Bible to share, well, you know, what, what good is opinion? And why would I want to hear your opinion? I want to hear what God has to say. Do you remember on one occasion they came to the disciples of Jesus and they said, we want to see Jesus. And that ought to be before or in the forefront of every preacher's mind. The people have come to see Jesus. And so I need to stick with the word. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, and he uses Paul himself and Apollos as an example. He said, listen, I've tried to teach you not to go beyond that which is written. See, that's where we get in trouble. People say, well, I don't understand the Bible, and I don't think we can understand the Bible. And, and just trying to follow the Bible creates division. Not, not so. We do understand the Bible. There is unity in the Bible. The problem comes when we get away from the Bible. For instance, Moses saw a burning bush. God spoke to him out of a burning bush. I don't know anybody that would argue with that. We agree with what the Bible says. Now, you want to know where there might be disagreement? What kind of bush was that? Well, let's see. They were living in the Middle East, and I think it would be this kind of bush, or, or I think it's this kind of... You see, that's where the division comes when we start trying to get into realms where God hasn't spoken. But we understand the Bible alike. We understand the Bible when it says what we're to do to be saved. It's when we begin to venture and say, well, can I still be saved if I do this or do that? And when we get away from the Bible, that's what causes the division. We're not divided over what the Bible says. For the most part, we're divided over what men say and how they have deviated from what the Scriptures explicitly teach. Another thing that will help us to be a great church, we need to be Christ-centered, we need to be bound by Scripture, and we need to respect diversity of opinion. I'm not saying we need to respect diversity in matters of revelation, in matters of um, necessity. I'm not saying that doctrine can just be tossed out the window. Everybody can believe what they want to believe. But I believe that if we're to be an effective church, we have to be gracious and we have to be long-suffering and we have to be patient and tolerant with people in their opinions. Read Romans 14 and the first part of chapter 15 and listen to what the Apostle Paul said. There were some issues in the first century church. They had right, wrong answers to those issues. The matter of eating meats, that was a big one for them. Um, some thought you could eat meat, some thought you couldn't eat meat. Those who thought you couldn't thought, well, that must be wrong because that was sold. That, those meats were used in pagan worship, and if I somehow go buy it in the marketplace, I'm somehow participating in that which is ungodly, and I don't think you ought to do that. There was a right answer to that. Paul was told by the Lord, and he, by revelation, shared with us the truth of the matter, there's nothing 
to meats. You can eat, but out of respect and deference to those who thought it was wrong, Paul said, bear with them, don't judge them, don't despise them, don't look down upon them because they haven't arrived at that knowledge yet. Treat them still as a brother and, and go on. There are matters that we can have, areas in which we can have disagreement, misunderstanding, and still be faithful to God. And if we don't allow that liberty in matters of opinion, then we start dividing. How many churches do you know of that have divided over matters that aren't really matters of doctrine? They're matters of opinion where a person wanted their way about this or that. Um, now I can list a host. I don't, I don't want to go that direction with it, but uh, I do want to emphasize the fact that in matters of opinion, we need to allow for diversity. Let me just give you an example. In, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What is that day? We're, dispo- we're, we're supposed to not forsake the assembly. We're supposed to assemble in view of the day approaching. What would your understanding of that be? Some might say has reference to the coming Sunday. Uh, Some might say it has reference to the Lord's final return. Some might say it has reference to the coming destruction on Jerusalem. Well, if we disagree on that, do we have to divide up and have three different churches? Or can we allow tolerance? There are different kinds of error. And I believe the Bible, you know, supports this. There are errors that do not deter us from faithfully serving God. And there are errors that do deter us from faithfully performing our duties to God. We need to make distinction in those type errors. A great church, an effective church, is one that respects diversity in opinion. And we don't try to force my opinion on other people, recognize it as an opinion. Also, another mark of a great church is a church that has visionary leadership. The leadership in the church is not to run like the leadership at IBM or, or, you know, Apple or Microsoft. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28 that the leadership in his kingdom will be fundamentally different In the world, great ones exercise authority. If you're great, it means you have all these people underneath you that you get the boss around. That's how greatness is determined in the world's view of things. But he said, not so in my kingdom. Greatness in my kingdom will come by service. The one who will be greatest is the one who will be least. And we need servant leaders in the Lord's church, not those who have power to command and demand um, compliance. We need men who can lead through their example, not that they don't have authority. They do. God has given them that. But that authority needs to be used uh, 
in a proper way and not with a lording over the flock. There are different kinds of leaders. There are leaders, I think, if you think about it and look at some men that maybe you have seen in places, there are those that are mission-minded, and then there are those who are maintenance-minded. Some are always looking, well, it's like carpenters and maintenance men. There are leaders that are always looking for ways to build, to get bigger, to be better. And then there are other leaders that just want to maintain and, and continue to repair. And to not, you know, we, we, need about, we need maintenance, but we also need carpenters in leadership. We need men that are not just simply thermometers, but thermostats. If you can kind of stay with me there. Thermometers just tell you what the temperature is. They don't control it. They just tell you where it, where it is. We don't need leaders to be able to look up and size up a situation and just simply be able to say, that's what's going on here. Now, we do need that, but not just that. We need leaders like a thermostat that can set and control the temperature. And we need men who not only can identify, here's where we are as a church, but men who can say, and let's go here or let's go there. Let's set this or that. We need that kind of leadership in the church. Churches that are effective have effective visionary leaders. And then the last point I'll share with you this evening is that to be great, a church needs to change lives. Listen, we can come together and we can have lessons and we can read our Bible and we can have Bible class and we can sing songs and we can do all that and go home and if nobody's lives are ever changed, people are not challenged, if they're not called from sin and complacency and mediocrity to something better and deeper than that, we're wasting our time. Jesus wants to change our lives. He wants to bring about conversion, change within us. And we have a lot of changing that needs to take place. None of us are where we ought to be. We need to improve. And so we need to have a church that allows us and provides for us a context of growth, of community, where I feel safe in saying I haven't arrived Help me, I'm trying to do better. Be with me, bear with me, be long-suffering. Correct me, but be patient and be kind when you do. We need a church that allows and, and encourages new creations. When a person comes to Christ and they obey the gospel, And there is at that moment, this morning, when those two young men were baptized into Christ, there is at that moment a change in their status, their standing before God. But the fact that that happens in a moment doesn't mean that our desire for sin and the pull and the tug that it has on us goes away just like that. That takes growth and maturity and strength and encouragement by our fellow friends. And we need to be a family of people that when somebody obeys the gospel, they have a right standing with God now, but they're still going to struggle and they need strength and they need help in maturing to become more and more Christ-like. That's what we need to be as a church. We need to be a church where 
people are safe. This is my problem. And I want to get from point A to point B, and I'm not there yet. Will you help me? And we allow change, and we encourage change, and we're patient with change that needs to take place in the lives of people. Look at those five things that I have on the board there behind me. A church to be effective should be Christ-centered, bound by Scripture, respect diversity in realms of opinion, should have visionary leadership, and it needs to be a place where lives can be changed for the better. What one of those things has to do with money? What one of those things has to do with size? What one of those things has to do with uh, resources? The size of a building, the newness, technology, none of them. You see, that's good news. Because I don't have to be up on the latest, and I don't have to be rich, and I don't have to be powerful, and I don't have to be big to be effective. These things are within our grasp. We can be an effective church if we'll allow God to work and live in us and and through us. Effectiveness in church has little to do with uh, size or race or wealth or education and a host of other things. It has to do with us lifting up Christ, living, letting Him live out through us in our personal life, and in a corporate way, showing Jesus to this community. One of the things that the early church did that helped it to grow and then to be added unto, and then to multiply, is that they magnified Jesus. When you, when you magnify something, if you have a magnifying glass and you magnify something, it makes it bigger than, in, than you, you can't miss it. You know, what would be too small to see, you, you can magnify it, and then you can see it because it gets bigger. On a $1 bill, in the corner of a $1 bill, there's a little spider, did you know that, that, that weaves, you know that web of stuff that goes all over the $1 bill, the, that, those lines across everywhere? That's a web. And there's a little spider, go home and look on your $1 bill, and in the right-hand corner, upper corner, there's a little spider that sits there. You can't hardly see it with your naked eye, but get a magnifying glass out. And look at it, and you can see its legs and its eyes. There's a spider there. makes it big so you can see it. That's what we need to do with Jesus. Jesus is here, but a lot of people don't see him. There's people in this community that don't see him. So what we need to do as a church is to make him bigger than life. Make it so that they can't miss him so that they have to make a decision about who he is and what role he'll play in their life. I I can't make that decision for them, but I do want to make Jesus big enough that they see him and they're forced to make a decision. We can do that, and it's within our power if we'll allow God to live in and through us. If you're here tonight and you're not yet a child of God, if you're not a part of this church that God wants you to be a part of, that Jesus died for and shed his blood for, why don't you make that decision tonight? Again, 
Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's how we initially begin our walk with God. We believe in him. We turn from our sins. We're baptized and God will save us, put us to work in his kingdom from that point on. If you haven't done that, do that this evening. If you're a child of God already but unfaithful and you say, it's time to get things right. I I haven't been where I ought to be and I want to do better. Forgive me. You know, in Revelation, it says the spirit and the bride say, come. We know God wants you to come. We know the spirit wants you to come. But there are several hundred folks here tonight who are on your side. And they too say, come. If you need to get your life right, you won't be judged. You'll be applauded. You'll be encouraged. Because we, along with the spirit, say, come. If you need to respond, won't you come as we stand together and sing?